Well, good morning, Clemson Presbyterian Church. It's good to see you again at this 9 o'clock service this morning. Let's turn together to Psalm 121. Psalm 121. One of the more familiar psalms to us generally. And as you do so, uh, this is our third week in a row that you've been in a psalm of ascent. Psalm 126 a couple weeks ago. And then Matthew leading through Psalm 130 last week. And then this is the, a third psalm in this collection of psalms that are Psalms number 120 to 134. These were, uh, again, pilgrim psalms that were collected, compiled, some of them written after the Babylonian exile in the 6th century B.C. And the Jews would have then sung these uh, annually as they made their annual trips to the festivals in Jerusalem. Uh, up through the times of Jesus. Jesus would have sung these psalms as well as he was traveling to Jerusalem for the festivals and then back home. They would have sung these for a generation after Jesus up until 70 AD when Jerusalem was then utterly destroyed by the Roman armies led by General Titus, soon to be Emperor Titus. And with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the, the, the priesthood and the sacrifices have never been reestablished since. And thus, the annual pilgrimages and the, and the, and the whole purpose of the festivals uh, have not been able to be uh, carried out since. And so these psalms then have been taken up into the life of the church and the life of those who confess Jesus as Messiah, whether Jews or Gentiles, who believe that Jesus is God's Messiah. And we, we celebrate these psalms as those, those songs that Jesus himself sung. Uh, that point us to him and that mark the, the life of faith, which is a pilgrimage itself. As we are journeying in the way of Christ, by the grace of Christ, to that place where Christ has gone ahead of us to prepare a home for us. Um, the Psalms have always been immensely important to the church. We haven't talked about this very much, but do you know there were, there were times in church history, uh, Steve and Matthew will be glad to know that we don't live in these times. There are times in church history when a man could not be ordained as a pastor unless he had memorized the Psalms. All 150 of them. Luther had all of the Psalms memorized. Calvin knew most of them by heart. And it was, they were thought to be important because the Psalms furnish a certain richness to our prayers that we're lacking without them. Uh, maybe you've had the experience of making a commitment to being a praying man or a praying woman and taking a set time every day. You made your list of things you want to pray for. And after a couple of weeks, you find yourself in a little bit of a rut where you are essentially praying uh, the same old things about the same old things. And my, how the language has gotten repetitive, and you find yourself getting uh, just, just stuck and losing motivation. The psalms are given so that that doesn't happen. As you come through different psalms each day, they, they afford you different language and different concepts that, that become almost like a, a structure or like a, a balloons that you attach to your prayers that, that lift them up to the Lord in fresh ways. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his excellent little book on the Psalms, he, he says this. So the Psalms were given so that we might pray, not out of the poverty, poverty of our own hearts, but out of the richness of God's Word. That's kind of our, our two alternatives. We either pray out of the poverty of our own hearts, saying the same old things about the same old things, or we feast upon the language God has given us, the riches of the language He has given us, to shape our prayers anew every day. So we bring that perspective to Psalm 121. This isn't just learning something that God has revealed to us. This is us learning how God would teach us to respond to his revelation as we come to this psalm. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. 
From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, would you use this time in this psalm to keep us, to strengthen our grip and response on you, and to teach us the things that we can pray with confidence because of who you are and what you have promised. Lord, we would bring to you in this moment our true selves, our whole lives, the situations that are causing us the most worry, anxiety, frustration, fatigue. We bring those right to you right now. And we pray that as you come to us with yourself in your word, we would receive you with ourselves, as was already prayed, ready to be not just informed, but transformed. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we'll look at three things this morning. First, uh, the Lord's power to help his people. Secondly, the Lord's promise to protect his people. And then thirdly, our response to such power and such promises. All right? So let's begin with the Lord's power to help his people here in verses 1 to 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Some of you may know the name of J. Gresham Machen. He lived about 100 years ago. And he's one of the great heroes in American Presbyterian church history. He was a New Testament scholar, particularly a Pauline scholar. He was also a great just thinker and defender of the Christian faith at a time when the church was beginning to kind of really go off the rails in America. And he was the founder, one of the founders of Westminster Theological Seminary. Those are the things he's primarily remembered for. He wrote excellent defenses of the virgin birth and various other things that people continue to read to this day. The thing that he wrote that I have read the most, though, has nothing to do with New Testament scholarship or uh, intellectual battles. He wrote a short essay called Mountains and why we love them. Machen not only enjoyed refreshing his soul in the depths of Scripture, he also loved going out into the creation, and he would almost every year go out for some big hiking expedition, whether in the mountains of New Hampshire or often to the Swiss Alps. And this is what he wrote in this little essay, Mountains and Why We Love Them. He writes, What have I from my visits to the mountains? Not only from those in the Alps, but also, for example, from that delightful 24-mile walk, which I took one day last summer in the White Mountains over the whole Twin Range. That's in New Hampshire, and the Appalachian Trail courses through there now. In hours of darkness and discouragement, I love to think of that sharp summit ridge of the Matterhorn piercing the blue, or the majesty and the beauty of that world spread out at my feet, when I stood at the summit of the Dent Blanche, also in Switzerland. What a wonderful help it is in all discouragements. What a blessed gift of God to be able to bring before the mind's eye such a vision as that. We aren't sure when the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills, whether he's writing of 
hills in general, mountains that they might see living in northern Israel or wherever they might be, or whether it's particularly the mountains that surround Jerusalem. Uh, A later psalm says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people. Or that particular mountain on which Jerusalem was built and on which these annual festivals will take place. But we do know that mountains in general have a way of witnessing uh, to God's strength and they have a way of renewing our perspective. I love what John Piper said some years ago about when you first see the Grand Canyon. He said, no one ever drove to the Grand Canyon, stepped out of their car and walked to the rim and for the first time beheld this vast expanse of this canyon and said, wow, I am awesome. And in the same way, none of us have ever looked at a, a glorious mountain range from a distance. Or, like Machen says, stood atop one and, and surveyed the world, quote, spread out at your feet, as he says, and thought, I'm not sure God's big enough to handle my problems. Can you relate to that? Do you have a, a vision that comes to mind, a place you've stood, have you've taken in? Maybe for some of you, it's, a, it's on the coast. But some monument in God's creation that testifies to the majesty of the Creator and it just reminds you of His power and His strength and has a way of putting things in perspective. Well, again, the Psalms of Ascent were arranged after Israel had spent 70 years in Babylon and God had sent them into exile because there were important things about Him and His covenant with them that they had forgotten. And they were going to relearn them in the furnace of Babylon. And at the top of that list of lessons needing to be relearned was recovering a sense of God's transcendence. Now, what do I mean by that? Most people throughout most of history, including our ancestors, if we go back far enough, and many people in the world still today, worship the God of their city or the gods of their nation. And those gods were thought to dwell in whatever temple they had built, whether it's some of the Mayan temples maybe you've seen if you've been to Mexico or if you've traveled through Greece. The temple to the goddess Artemis in Ephesus where Paul wrote his epistle to the Ephesians. The the thought was that gods are essentially local deities that have a limited jurisdiction of how far their, their strength and their power can reach. And so if you are nearer to that God's temple, you have kind of a a greater signal strength. And that God has something he can do to help you if you cry out in distress and if you say the prayers and the rituals the way that the people understood that God wanted them to be said. But if you get further from that temple, a hundred miles or a couple hundred miles, it's like a cell phone moving farther from a tower. Your signal strength grows weaker. People who travel long distances want to know which temple is nearest to me, which God is it, so if I have something go wrong, I know to whom to call out. This was the way the Philistines understood their gods, the Assyrians, and as well the Babylonians. Last night at dinner, we were talking with our children about, um, this is not a normal conversation for us, we usually talk about just what happened in your day. But I just, something came up and I said, you know, you you guys really are in the minority these days. Uh, The things that you're learning as kids about Christ and the Christian faith and the scriptures, just um, most people don't believe that anymore. You're in a minority and you're you're probably going to be a minority for all of your life. Um, And my son remembered a story from years ago that I told him about the great privilege I had. I've not had a privilege of leading many people to Christ in a one-on-one way. 
But I did have the privilege of leading my grandfather to Christ when he was 87, my mom's father. And my son remembered that. And so when he heard me talk about most people don't believe what you believe, he's like, yeah, like, like um, your grandfather before he believed in Jesus. And I said, yes, like my grandfather before he believed in Jesus. And then he says, did he believe in Zeus? <laughs> Which of the Greek gods did he believe in before he believed in Jesus? You can guess what he's studying in school right now. But there's a sense in which that's a natural question for most of human history. What local God do you believe in? This local tribal deity. Now, Israel had in many ways fallen into a shrunken view of the Lord as their God, particular to their nation, who dwelled in their capital city in Jerusalem, in that temple. But they'd begun to lose a sense that their God was the maker of all things. Have you ever wondered why Jonah thought he could run from the Lord? Silly Jonah, don't you know that God is everywhere? Don't you know that God is omnipresent? No, he didn't. Or at least he'd forgotten. Or maybe he was still confessing these things with his mouth, but he was no longer functionally believing them in his heart. And so when the Lord says to Jonah, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach a message of repentance to the enemies of Israel, which means a message of hope for them, Jonah says, no way. And then he does this thing where he says, I'm going to get as far away from Jerusalem as possible and maybe get myself out of signal strength where I can be free from any consequences of my, of my refusal. And Jonah learns, if you know the story, in the belly of a great fish in the depths of the sea, far, far from Jerusalem and its temple, that if he cries out to the Lord in the depths of the sea from his distress, his prayer ascends to the Lord's ears in his temple. And from that great distance, the Lord can send that fish, that great fish, back to land and have that fish spit out Jonah onto the land and set him back on the path that God originally called him to, to go to Nineveh and preach a message of repentance. Lesson learned. The Lord is not a local tribal deity. He's the transcendent God who has created all things and is over all things and is equally authoritative and present everywhere to his people in whatever place they are in their time of need. Now, this is exactly what Israel learned, not in the, the belly of a fish, but in the belly of the Babylonian Empire. A 900-mile journey from Jerusalem. Their temple destroyed. Their God with them, reigning, keeping them, preparing a future for them. And at the right time, turning the heart of King Cyrus to come and to conquer Babylon and then to liberate the Jews, set them free, and provide monies from his own treasury to send them home to rebuild in Jerusalem. Lesson learned. Our God is not a local deity. The Lord is the maker of heaven and earth. And as such, he is worthy of all awe and reverence and obedience and trust. That's why many of the Psalms of Ascent, they, they mark this recovery of the recognition that God is the transcendent Lord and Creator by this repetition of the Lord, the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth. You find that frequently in these Psalms 120 to 134, including the last verse of the whole collection. Psalm 134, verse 3, finishes on this note. May the Lord bless you from Zion, but don't think he's limited there. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. 
So the accent is on God's power to help, which also then raises the question when you're praying Psalm 121, from, from where does my help come? Where do I look for help? Where do I functionally look for help? Another way of putting it is, when I am stressed and overwhelmed, what do I run to for relief? For many people, they run to escape, get some distance between me and this situation. I'm going to spend this time planning my next vacation or try and get a day away this Saturday. I'm going to figure out how to get on the lake or in the woods. You're going to heed the call of Southwest Airlines. Remember those commercials from 2019? Want to get away? Yes. And that's how I'm going to deal with feeling stressed or overwhelmed. I'm going to get away. Maybe we get away just by binging on Netflix or chasing rabbit holes down YouTube or whatever it may be. One way or another, we, we, we create an escape from the situation. Others run to blaming uh, like Adam blaming Eve, like Eve blaming the serpent, like Israel blaming Moses and Aaron. When we feel overwhelmed or upset by something, it's a, it's a soothing mechanism of some sort. It feels good to blame somebody. Children blaming parents, parents blaming grandparents, grandparents blaming culture, spouses blaming each other, churches blaming church leaders, church leaders blaming other church leaders. I know this one all too well. It's one of my defaults. How often is that which you functionally run to when you feel stressed and overwhelmed? You run to blaming. Others run to self-medicating. You numb the pain with some form of drugs or drink or sexual satisfaction, whether it's pornography or another person. Some way of just, I can't deal with the pain, I can't escape the pain, so I'm just going to forget about the pain for a while. When you pray Psalm 121, you have to pause and wrestle with this question, doing so honestly with the Lord, who knows that you're weak and feeble, and he knows that you're a sinner, so nothing you would ever tell him ever takes him by surprise. Where does my help come from? And the psalmist kind of comes alongside you and says, my people and I learned that our help is in the Lord, who made heaven and earth, and yours can be too. We see the Lord's power to help his people. He's the transcendent God. And then secondly, in the remaining verses, we see the Lord's promise to protect his people. Let's, let's move quickly through verses 3 to 6 and then slow down a bit in verse 7. Because the Lord is not confined to any particular place or time, he can be with you wherever you are as you travel through life's journey. And he can make this promise to you that your foot will not be moved if you're standing in his grace, if you're walking in his ways, you do not need to fear that anyone else or anything else will have the power to knock you off his path. He will always give you the strength you need to take another step. Whatever the time of day, day or night, you can have confidence. The Lord hears you. He sees you. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. His ears and eyes are open to you 24 7, 365. Uh, one of the favorite catechism questions in our house, if you know the children's catechism, it has a, a great question and answer. It says, can you see God? You ask a seven or eight-year-old that. Can you see God? And they answer, no, but he can always see me. And when we're turning the lights out, except for a closet light, and a five-year-old says, daddy, I feel scared, I might say, he who keeps you neither slumbers nor sleeps. Can you see God? No, but he can always see me. 
and sometimes they feel a little better. But if you've gone through a season of great anxiety or depression, you know that nighttime can be forever. And it's a great comfort to know that he who keeps you neither slumbers nor sleeps. It says, he who keeps Israel, that's the people of God in the Old Testament. Their form is that of a nation state. And then as we move to the New Covenant, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on people from all nations, tribes, and tongues, and gathering Jews and Gentiles together under the name of Christ into one people, we speak no longer of the people of God as a nation state, but as the church Catholic. That is to say, the church of a transnational people taken from every nation and every people group as juxtaposed against the old covenant way of God having a nation state. So he who keeps the whole church, he can keep you, he can keep everyone you see in this room, he can keep every believer throughout the world. That's a promise he can make. But then we get to verse 7 and this great promise that takes a little thinking to understand it. It promises the greatest protection of all. He will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Now my guess is you find it easier to believe that the Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps than you find it to believe that he keeps believers from all evil. Is that, is that a fair assumption? This one could make you wonder, what, what about the evil that surrounded me? It was in one of the, the, the I think it was in our assurance of the gospel that oftentimes we find ourselves with evil encamped around us. How, how can it be said the Lord keeps us from all evil? Understand this. The Bible distinguishes between evil and affliction. And it nowhere promises that we will be kept from affliction. Jesus not teach us to pray, keep me from Affliction. Affliction is pain, suffering, hardship. Something present that you wish was not there in your life or something that's absent that you wish was still there in your life. That's the ways that we experience affliction. But Jesus does teach us to pray, deliver us from evil. And the Bible makes this promise that God will keep us from evil. So what's the difference? I'll put it this way. I think affliction describes the experience itself. The experience of going through a hardship. Affliction describes Daniel's friends in the furnace. It describes Israel in exile. It describes Jonah in the whale. It describes us going through a very hard, taxing, painful season of life. One in which, hearkening back to Psalm 126, as you're going through the season of life, you might be sowing in tears. That is affliction. And God lets us pass through affliction. But here's the key. He prevents evil from prevailing in the affliction. I bet some of you, your minds have already gone to the story of Joseph. There at the end of Genesis. Kidnapped, Joseph kidnapped, sold into slavery, falsely accused, unjustly imprisoned. Promises made to tell his story by those who got out of prison that are are neglected or forgotten for years. He's left to language. He suffered much affliction. But in it all, the the evil purpose intended by his brothers who sold him into slavery, the evil purpose intended by Potiphar's wife who issued a false accusation, these evil purposes God did not allow to prevail, to to reach their intended end. Rather, God used all these things. He turned it and overturned it again and again for good, bringing Joseph into a place 
where he could be in charge of the food stores of Israel and prepare the nation and that part of the world for a great famine that would eventually save his family, Jacob and his sons and their families, from starvation and thus continue God's promised covenant line, beginning with Abraham, that will reach eventually to Jesus. And there's that great line in Genesis 50, 20, where Joseph uh, sees his brothers again for the first time in years. And they now, like, the game's up. They now know this is Joseph, and they know what we have done to him, and they know how evil it is, and they're, they're weeping, and they're trembling. And Joseph is able to say to them, you meant it for evil. Like, we're not going to beat around the bush and, and just put positive brushstrokes over it. Yes, you meant it for evil, but the good news is this. God meant it for good. In my experience of affliction, God did not allow evil to prevail. Psalm 34, 19 says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, from the evil of it, and deliver me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Evil is what would keep me from reaching my home in the Father's heart and in his heaven. And evil will not prevail. Though the road be marked with suffering, he will keep me from evil. You could write next to that verse, he will keep me from all evil. You could write next to it, 2 Corinthians 4, 7-9. 2 Corinthians 4, 7-9. If there's a passage that we probably need to start getting into our bones for the generation to come. It would be this one. Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Then listen to these juxtapositions. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus Christ, so that the life of Jesus Christ may also be manifested in our mortal bodies. Listen to the list of afflictions that he says he and his companions experience. Afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. And then listen to the way that none of these ends in evil, but not crushed, not driven to despair, not forsaken, not destroyed. Remember that quote from G.K. Chesterton a couple weeks ago where Chesterton said that Jesus promises his disciples three things. That they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. That's what's going on here. Yes, many are the afflictions of the righteous, Psalm 34. But in the midst of affliction, he will keep his people from evil. The evil intention behind the affliction will not have its way because God has a good purpose, a refining purpose, a missional purpose, one that you'll look back on and say like Joseph did, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for a world of good. What a promise. Much affliction, but kept from evil. And the second is an extension of it. He will keep your life. It may not be the life you've longed for. It may not be the life you studied for. It may not be the life you've worked for, that you've scrapped and saved for, that you've been planning to preserve in some way or another. 
There's no promise that he'll keep that life. But he will keep the life he gives you. The life of grace in this life. The life of glory in the life to come. The true life that Jesus says is life to the full, no matter how little you have or how hard the way. There's a beautiful scene in the second part of Pilgrim's Progress. You know, the first part of Pilgrim's Progress is when Christian makes his way to the celestial city. And then after he's there, his wife, Christiana, eventually begins making the way. You know it. And she has a vision at one point in her journey. And it's a vision of a man with a muckrake, just like a rake. And she sees that this man could look no ways but downward with a muckrake in his hand. And he's just constantly raking together and trying to hold together a little pile of sticks and and dusty debris. And it's a tragic vision because in the vision there's a man kind of hovering over the man's head. And he's holding forth to him a crown right over his head. And there's this gospel offer that's just being repeated. A muckrake for a crown. A muckrake for a crown. But we read, the man did neither look up nor regard, but raked to himself the straws, the small sticks, and the dust of the floor. It's a picture of a man or a woman going through life with a gospel offer from Jesus Christ, right within reach. A muckrake for a crown. You've got this little life you're trying to cobble together of things that are passing and fleeting, a little resume, a little reputation you want to hold on to, a, a little bits of passing pleasures. None of it will last. None of it's really worth anything in the, in the big picture perspective. Even when you stand on a mountaintop and look over a grand range, you get a sense of how small it really is. But over your head is being held a great crown. It's a crown of righteousness for your sin, a crown of wisdom for your foolishness, a crown of sanctification for your worldliness, a crown of belonging for your alienation, a crown of love in the midst of your emptiness, a crown that secures for you an inheritance for eternity beyond this life in exchange for you trying to hold on to sand that will slip between your fingers. A muckrake for a crown. God doesn't promise to keep what we're raking together, but he does promise to keep the crown that he would put on our heads. He will keep your life. And the psalm finishes with a note of pilgrimage. He will keep your going out and your coming in. You could think of that as the annual pilgrimage. You could think of that as the daily rhythm. Out I go. I come back. From this time forth and forevermore. The Lord's power to help his people. The Lord's promise to protect his people. What's our response to this? Well, first, just move with me. If you have your Bibles open, put your eyes on Psalm 121. Imagine it's Monday morning. And you woke up 15 minutes earlier than you were planning to so that you could have some time with a cup of coffee and to offer your prayers to the Lord using Psalm 121 as a springboard. So you kind of go like this. You rub your eyes from the night's sleep. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Lord, you know the ways I've sought help by just looking forward to my next trip or my next break or just persecuting and judging someone else in my mind, blaming them for the difficulty I'm in, or the ways I've sought to self-medicate that are, that are sinful or in the very best unhealthy. Um, I'm sorry that I have not sought you for my help. 
because you are a helper to your people. And I look at my schedule today, and it seems like you might be here right now with me, but as I'm going off to work and to school and to this meeting and have this conversation and have to send an email about this decision, I'm worried that you won't be there with me then. But I'm reminded, like you say, you're, you're the Lord who made heaven and earth. You're no less present with me there than here. Help me to believe that today. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps will not slumber. Lord, I've got a, a, a walk of faith to do today. Help me to walk in your spirit. Help me to walk in your ways. And give me the confidence that, that as long as I take a next step on your path and your ways, there is nothing that can knock me off of it. I will finish today one day closer to glory in heaven than I am this morning when I woke up. Behold, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Lord, I pray for other believers in my life and in my church and in other places that I know, for missionaries and for other nations. It's amazing that you're able to keep your eye on the sparrow and on every need of all of your people throughout the world at one time. That gives me confidence. If you can do that, you can keep my life. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. I'm going in ways I might not see with my eyes today, but in ways that are invisible and real. I'm going to experience your protection today. And I will experience your protection tonight. The Lord will keep you from all evil. There's affliction ahead. I may be in the furnace of it now, but I thank you that you make this great promise that I don't need to fear it because it will not turn out for my evil. You will override every evil intention of my own heart and that of others and of Satan and of the world. You will override it and your good will prevail for your people and for me. You will keep my life. Lord, as I look at that and pray that, I think of what Jesus says, that he who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who loses it for my sake in the gospel shall find it. Or like Jesus says in John's gospel, he who hates his life will keep it for eternal life. Lord, help me to love that life that you have given me by grace through Christ and to hold very loosely, with grateful hands, but very loosely to everything else that does not endure. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Lord, Grant me traveling mercies today. Be with me as I drive, as I go, as I come home. Help me to be quick to turn to you in prayer in all my going out and in all my coming in throughout this day, this time forth and forevermore. You see how the psalm furnishes prayer. So you've prayed that, but then what's the, what's the appropriate response in closing, I've been, I've been using a day planner for the last three, three and a half years. It's the same day planner I use all the time. I just get a new one every quarter because it covers three months. And the day planner has a different kind of quote at the top of each day that you would plan. And it's just a secular day planner. So a lot of the quotes are kind of just, you know, motivational fluff. But there's one quote, and it comes up usually about halfway through my quarter. And it's, it's a quote that always stops me in my tracks. So I finished my, you know, read my Bible that morning. I've prayed. My coffee's starting to get cold. I'm ready to kind of get on with my day. I'm beginning to prioritize and schedule my day. And I hit this quote, and it says, what would you do if you were brave? That one just arrests me. What would you do if you were brave? 
Psalm 121 begins with the question, from where does my help come? And given the answer, my help comes from the transcendent Lord who made heaven and earth, who's preserved His people for millennia, who will not let my foot be moved, who's open to me 24-7, 365, who promises to keep me from evil and keep my life. Given that answer, is it not appropriate to ask, so what would I do if I were brave? Because if I really believe this, I'll be a little braver. You know, the Psalms comfort us, but they never comfort us to make us comfortable. That's not the goal. They comfort you to strengthen you. They comfort you to fill you with courage. To go out one more day and get back up again. To go out one more day and fight one more battle. To go out one more day and contend against the world outside and the devil and your own flesh within. To go out one more day And take that leap of faith and share your testimony with a friend. To go out one more day and hold your ground when the pressure is turned up. To go out one more day and take the initiative of asking forgiveness from someone that you know you've done something wrong to them. And even though they've done way more wrong to you, you're responsible for asking their forgiveness for the wrong you've done to them. The courage to go out one more day and love your church, even in a hard season. The courage to surrender to God's call on your life. He will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. So what would you do if you were brave? Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you are the Lord God. And our eyes have never beheld any majestic scene in your creation that was not your creation, spoken by your word into being and which you govern with ease. Help us to see you for who you are and trust you according to your promises. And Lord, you know each man, each woman, each boy, each girl who's here, and all of us face something that calls for courage in Christ. Would you help us trusting your help to be brave to face it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.